Louis Loriseb has been an opera fan for as long as he can remember, first becoming enamored with the art form after hearing a performance on TV. Now he's back in Los Angeles, a former young artist here at LA Opera conducting this season's The Barber of Seville. Listen in as Louis discusses his journey to conducting, the mentors who shaped his career, and his favorite musical moments in The Barber of Seville with Senior Director of Artistic Planning, Paul Hopper. Playing now through November 12th, tickets to The Barber of Seville are available at laopera.org. Hello, I am Paul Hopper, Senior Director of Artistic Planning at LA Opera, and I'm joined here today with Louis Loriseb, conductor for LA Opera's The Barber of Seville. Louis, it's so great to be speaking with you today. Thanks for making the time. Hi, Paul. So excited to be here. It's always very exciting to have alumni of our Young Artist Program back with us, especially on the podium, conducting an entire production. Last season, we saw you on the podium for Tosca, and this year we get to see you both for Barber of Seville and one of the performances of La Traviata this spring as well. How does it feel to be back at this company conducting productions? It's amazing. (laughs) It's just wonderful. I mean, this is my artistic home in so many ways. It's the first place I had a professional job. It's the place I met my wife and, you know, we have our apartment here. So being here in Los Angeles and getting to do these amazing pieces, it's just, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. Absolutely. And we're very happy to have you back. Uh, We're going to talk about a number of different things, your career, your experience in the Young Artist Program, and then the Barber of Seville as well. So let's start at the very beginning. What drew you to music, even if maybe before you knew it was a potential career path? What was your origin story? Well, it actually does really start really, really early on. Mm -hmm. My family thinks that my aunt hit my head on the refrigerator when I was about two days old, and that, you know, ignited the music gene. (laughs) No one in my family is musical at all, and... uh, What happened was I was born in 1991 and my father loved soccer and he was watching the 94 Soccer World Cup. Hmm. And it said, stay tuned, watch the Three Tenors concert. I asked my parents, what is that? And they said, oh, it's something you probably won't like. And being just a little stinker, I made them keep it on and something, I loved it. It, Hmm. I just was mesmerized, my parents said, and I wouldn't stop watching it. They started buying me cassettes of the three tenors, and I'm Louis because my grandfather was Louis. He was born in Italy, Luigi. So, of course, being Italian, he said, well, Luciano Pavarotti is the one. And so we started getting his cassettes. And that year for Christmas, I got my, what I called my Pavarotti suit, and they got (laughs) me my first tuxedo. I just loved it. I was very, very, very fortunate when I was five Pavarotti came to Connecticut to do a concert. I'm from upstate New York and so very close. And I had an uncle who lived in Connecticut, got tickets. And my family being so supportive, but not really knowing much about, of course, the industry at all, just were were determined that I would meet my hero. And they went about doing that by giving, I made a tape of myself singing And my father asked the ushers who were, you know, taking everyone's tickets, all of whom looked at my father a little, you know, incredulously and said, well, we can't let you meet him. (laughs) And one of them finally asked, well, who are you? And I said, well, I'm an opera singer. And so I sang and uh, being very, very loud, they all heard me and uh, started clapping for me. And Herbert Breslin was there, Pavarotti's longtime manager, and was wondering what, what happened. 
they explain that this little boy, etc., etc., and so wonderfully he gave two backstage passes, and I got to meet him. And he asked me if I would sing, and I was too too embarrassed. And I said, next time I meet you, and I can't believe it, but it actually did happen. When I was nine, he came even closer to home. And uh, by that time, I'd been on radio shows and television shows for being this little boy who loves opera. So I went on the radio show that morning, and they told me they had arranged it. And so this time, he asked me if uh, I would sing for him, and I did. And he was so wonderful. You know, you don't always get to meet your heroes and they live up to your expectations. But in this case, he certainly did. And he was wonderful. And that's what really began everything was this love for opera. Uh, When I was five, I started piano lessons. I fell in love with Mozart when I was in middle school and uh, started writing compositions in that style, which led me to work with Robert Levin, one of the great a musicologist for Mozart, and a William Kerrigan, a great Bruckner scholar and musicologist. And they really helped shape, you know, my musical thoughts and ideas and and so on and so forth. I ended up being the conducting fellow at Yale in 2013, where a certain James Conlon came to visit. Mm. And that's when that relationship began. Wow, what a interesting introduction. Having myself worked in opera for a while now, It's very rare that the first connection to classical music and an interest in it is with opera. Yes. Oftentimes there's almost a feeder program of, oh, well, I started playing the piano or I started doing musicals in high school or through, you know, church choirs. But to go directly to opera right away, I think it also speaks to the power of bringing opera outside of the theaters and seeing it yes. on the television, it was the World Cup, you yeah, said, yeah. to see it in front of that type of an audience is just a perfect example of the importance of keeping classical music in spaces that might not be traditionally where they're originally found. I mean, that's such a good point. And I think that there's something so wonderful about having this music be brought to so many people. These different venues, shall we say, or non-conventional venues really help keep it alive and and bring that joy and music to people. It's wonderful. So your first experience was really singing, then, yes. it sounds yes. like. Did you pursue that in any capacity, or was it very quickly towards conducting? Or what was the path between that first singing in the lobby towards conducting at LA Opera? Yeah, well, I I did want to be a singer. I mean, when I was when I was really little, I mean... When I was seven, I was the Duke from Rigoletto for Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) My goldfish was Rodolfo growing up. Wow. And actually conducting Tosca was very special for me because when I was five, my aunt bought me my first four VHSs of operas, all of which were with Pavarotti, of course. Mm -hmm. It was Tosca, Bohème, Rigoletto, and Aida. And so getting to do Tosca, you know as my first main stage production here was was very special for that reason as well. But yeah, I wanted to be a singer. I sang a lot. I also, you know, when you're a, I was their first child, uh, you, you wonder and worry about what your children will do, what sort of problems will happen. Getting a phone call from the principal saying that your child won't stop singing opera on the bus, maybe is not on everyone's list, but my my family had to deal with that. <laughs> I took voice lessons in high school, and but I, I I really 
fell in love with piano and with orchestral literature. And and I, I had sort of a crisis of what am I going to do? And I think right around the time of being 17 or 18, conducting started to be an idea. And I went to college uh, at SUNY Geneseo where I got to do so many wonderful things. I got to conduct, I got to play, I got to write essays, I did all of these things. I had a choice at the end of of my undergraduate years to either go into conducting or to go into musicology. I was very, very lucky to be chosen as the 2013 fellow at Yale. And I felt like that was just a sign to do it. And, Mm -hmm. And that's where we... That's how we got to where we are right now. And as I had mentioned, I James came to do Mahler V, Symphonia de Requiem of Britain. They gave him a pizza party afterwards. And I thought, you know, this is just my chance to, to do something. And I don't know why I did what I did, but I decided to play D-flat cabalettas in Verdi on the piano to some of my friends. I thought, why not? And uh, as we were walking out, he he looked at me and he said... So you like Verdi. And that was the beginning of it. And he so generously invited me to come here. So the first time I was ever in L.A. was 2014 mm-hmm. to, to observe rehearsals of Lucia. And then he invited me to Ravinia and I went on from there with James. It was very wonderful and very grateful for that. So let's turn then to your time in the Young Artist Program. I gather that you had sort of an interesting path in that the program is often made up of singers and pianist coaches, and you really sort of navigated a unique path in the program. What drew you to the program first? Well, this opera house, of course, is known for such excellence. And also, I had already been here as an assistant for Nabucco on one production, I had seen firsthand just Hmm. really what happens. And this really is a very, very special company that everyone is treated in a way like family, even though we're working at the highest level. I mean, we have the world's greatest talent and we have great people who are here on a regular basis. So naturally, that was really, really appealing to me. Like you said, it was somewhat unconventional. James had spoken with me and said, look, I want you to assist me. You're going to play lessons. You're going to coach as well, which I was already doing at IU. I was at Indiana doing doctoral work in conducting, but spent most of my days coaching singers where I learned an awful, awful lot. And so it just seemed like a great next step for me and to immerse myself in the professional world. It was great. It was a great experience. And I learned so much from... I mean, so many people, so many of the the guest artists that come to work with the yaps and also the main stage was just wonderful. I know one of the hardest parts about starting a career in conducting is actually getting the chance to conduct. Yes. Uh, It's different from singers who can, you know, practice on their own or with a pianist or have engagements or gigs that don't involve an entire orchestra or a partial orchestra alone. So talk to me about some of your first times actually conducting an orchestra with singers, either in your training in school or during the program. What what did it feel like those first times? Well, what you said is so true. It's so hard to get those opportunities, particularly here in the United States, mm-hmm. where our system is different than that in Europe. My first time ever conducting singers when I was 16 or 17 doing a concert I did Bastien und Bastien of Mozart 
And we got a string quartet and we did all of that. And then when I was an undergrad, I, of course, was able to conduct the undergrad orchestra and we did all those types of things. But in my senior year, I went to the student union and I asked for, I forget how much money, I think sixteen or $17,000 to put together a professional orchestra and do a concert. And we did it. They, they, wow. they said yes. That was a great first experience for me too, working with professionals and I had a, a wonderful friend who is a great cellist, and she came and did the Saint-Saëns cello concerto. We did Beethoven four and Tombeau de Coupin of Ravel. At Yale, I really concentrated on orchestral literature because of the nature of the program, but also, like you said, unusually, I had a lot of experience in opera. And after my time at Yale, I actually went to Ravinia, as I said, and was with James, where someone said, you know, you should really meet Kevin Murphy, hmm. who was just here playing the recits for Don Giovanni and was here last year for Figaro. It just seemed like the right choice. My grandfather, who I loved very much, passed away in 2015. And on the same day, I got the, the letter to uh, go to IU. So it all seemed like a sign. So I went into the orchestral program at IU, and that was what I was studying so to speak, but I really learned a lot from Kevin and working at the IU Opera Theater. And again, to your point, we were doing Butterfly, and my teacher at the time really wanted to give me a performance. And he said, we have students sing, we have students do so many things, why can't we have our student who really deserves to have a, a performance have it? And he went to bat for me, but they decided against it. But I got to do a couple of rehearsals, which was a lot of fun. And now that I'm starting to work, I've gone back to IU and I've conducted Don Giovanni there. I conducted uh, Rondine. So it's nice to go back there as well and, and work in that capacity. But those were my first sort of experiences. It sounds like amazing experience. Uh, and gaining that experience in the university conservatory level clearly set you up to be successful in once you moved into an opera house. Right. So when you were in the program... I won't ask what a normal day would look like because there's no normal day in an opera company, as yes. we both know. Yes. But what would a regular week look like, maybe? Well, I I was quite busy and so happy to be so. So I was sort of doing double duty in a way because I was the assistant for the productions mm -hmm. and I was also part of the, the program. So I would, you know, have rehearsals for six hours at a time and then maybe have to play some lessons or give a few coachings or do, you know, we have so many wonderful outside things that the apps do at all times. So it was at any given time, there was something to keep me excited and busy. And it was a great, great experience. And I felt like it gave me a different level, like you said, now working with professionals and seeing how that, you know, relationship can work was also so crucial and, and being able to be in, you know, in that role of assisting or being there, you know, observing and learning so much from, you know, Stephen, Stephen King and Susan Graham and Paul Kerr, everyone. I mean, I'm going to forget so many names, but so many people who really dedicated a lot of their time and devotion to us and, you know, learning so much. It was, it was really, really informative. There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of time that it takes to get to performances. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the rehearsal process that has led us to this point today. Right. So in opera, there are 
new productions and there are revivals. Mm -hmm. So this was a revival of a fantastic production which originated in Chicago. What that means for the rehearsal process is that there's a slightly different atmosphere where there is creating and recreating. And when you have a revival, the greatest thing is when that recreation is in itself a new creation. And I think we really felt that during the rehearsal process of the staging where we had uh, Steven Sposito really work one-on-one with all of our principal artists and figure out how do we want to make this piece really tell a story. A piece like Barber of Seville is so well-known, and when you do it, it's, of course, very difficult to sing. So when people sing the roles, very often they sing them often and all around the world. The case of our production, we have Isabel Leonard singing Rosina, a role she's done many, many times. We have Edgardo Rocha singing, you know, Conta d'Alma Viva. Again, does it all over the place, as well as Paolo Bordonia and Patrick Carfizzi as Bartolo Joshua Hopkins as Figaro. So what I keep saying is that between those four principles alone, you have hundreds of performances of Barbara of Seville, all with different ideas, all with things that they personally like, or that they don't like. And in that case, we're very fortunate because we're dealing with a lot of ideas, which is always, I think, a great place to start. But how do we get all of those to tell one unified story? And that's been the the process, I think, for Stephen and myself, musically and dramatically, trying to bring all of that wonderful energy and creativity and tell a story to the audience that they can really enjoy. There's so many traditions in yes. this industry, and it's interesting to frame the cast that has come together via their experience and almost their traditions with the piece. I know that you are quite the scholar (laughs) and that there are different ways of approaching Rossini's scores. Yes. Do you have a philosophy on the composer or how to uh, prepare presentations of his works in 2023? That's one of my favorite questions. (laughs) A leading question. Yes, it's fantastic. (laughs) My philosophy is that you know, I feel that in 2023, there are people who are considered traditionalists or mm-hmm. uh, people who are considered, you know, I don't know what the word is, you know, come scritto or scholarly or, you know, as the composer wrote or trying to discover what the composer wrote. And what I try to achieve is an amalgam and a equilibrium between the two of them. So something I'm actually very happy and proud of in this process is that There are things that we are presenting which I believe are justified coming from tradition and also coming from, you know, scholarly research. One of my favorite things to tell people actually involves Barbara of Seville. So for those of you who love Una Voce Poco Fa, the first aria Rosina sings, you'll know that at least for the second time before she starts, there's the tradition to do a bit of a cadenza and then end it with, and that tradition we found out comes from Rossini. It was his idea. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And that I think is a great metaphor for the whole process of what tradition can be. These ideas which have been passed down through generation and generation, where tradition gets in the way, 
is if we expect something because of it, or if we do things that perhaps we don't find to be appropriate anymore. But using tradition and using research together is is really an exciting part of the job for me. Take, for example, the Count's aria that he sings. So in the first act, he sings Ecorirente in cello with the orchestra, and then he sings a song to Rosina. When we look at that music as singers, there's the vocal score that has just the piano accompaniment where they've reduced the orchestra and the vocal line. And everyone has seen for years a printed accompaniment to that aria. And even in my full score, there is an aria, there's an accompaniment that the guitar is supposedly to play. What they don't put in the vocal score is that that accompaniment is not even written in in the manuscript. Mm. And it is written for two or three bars in someone else's hand. So where did that come from? Definitely not Rossini. And in the second verse in the score, nothing is written at all, not even someone else's hand. So first we have to ask ourselves, why? And the reason why is that the first Alma Viva was Manuel Garcia, a famous tenor, but also a composer and a guitarist. There's a lot of debate, and people actually think that the melody was written by Garcia, not even by Rossini. So what did Garcia play? We have no clue, but I bet you it wasn't what we have written in the score and what we have been told is what was written by Rossini when in fact it wasn't at all. So in our performances, we're going to do a slightly modified version of what we've all known for the first verse. And then we are doing the second verse quicker and in Alafandengo, which is actually historically relevant and was correct. I looked at a few fandangos that were written around the time and so the the guitar accompaniment is basically doing what they would have done around the time of Rossini. So some people might think that's odd or strange but in fact it's probably closer to what actually happened than what we've grown accustomed to. Hmm. And when we're constantly reinterpreting works by composers who are no longer with us you have to have that sense of exploration and imagination I yes, think. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned the guitar, Mm -hmm. which is an instrument that we wouldn't necessarily immediately associate with an opera orchestra. Correct. There's a few other interesting things happening down in the pit with the instrumentation. What can we expect to see and maybe hear in performance? Well, first of all, the percussion section is much bigger than one might expect for an opera for Rossini, and also from what we've grown accustomed to hearing recently. There's a big debate in Rossini about an instrument called the sistro, and he writes in the plural sistri in the score of Barbara of Seville. No one really knows what he meant by that. The fact that it's sistri in the score implies that there's more than one instrument that could do it. We have to remember, of course, that these composers were writing very quickly mm-hmm. and were writing for the people at hand in the theater for that specific moment. The idea of posterity, the idea of writing for people to come and forever really stems from Beethoven and was not part of the vocabulary of Rossini and certainly people around the same time. So what we're doing is using triangles, but they're special triangles. They're called Janissary Triangles 
and they have these little brass rings on them. So they have a special sort of zingy quality to them. And we have an instrument, which is amazing. I mean, you want to talk about how cool and wonderful LA Opera is. There's an instrument known as the Jingling Johnny or the Turkish Crescent, which was part of what they called the Banda Turca, which was a big sort of uh, exotic thing in Europe at the time. Think of the Rondo alla Turk of Mozart or the abduction from the Seraglio. And what it is is basically a, a, a large stick with tons of bells on it that make a little jingle jangle sound. <laughs> and Teresa, our head percussionist, was wonderful, found the bells, and the the people in props made it in two days. And, and it's a beautiful instrument too. So if you come to the performances, take a look at that. You'll also see a very, very large piece of metal, and that is known as a thunder sheet. And you'll also see, speaking of that moment in the score, a very large so it looks like a mill with a piece of fabric, and then that's a wind machine. In The Barber of Seville and in other Rossini operas, there is a storm. It's sort of a hallmark of his style for some of his operas, where you get this moment of a musical depiction of a storm. And this really started with Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, where he has a storm in that, and then composers wanted to sort of do that, and Rossini was one of them. In the manuscript, it says you need a banda, but he writes nothing. And so what do you do with that? But he wrote that there should be. And so that's why you're going to see that big metal sheet. It's going to be a thunder sheet and it creates the sound of thunder and a wind machine and a big bass drum. And it sounds fantastic. A lot of theaters nowadays just do FX. They do, you know, pre-recorded thunder and lightning sounds. But because we had such willing and excited percussionists, and because I feel that it's part of the style of the piece to to reproduce it in that way, we're doing it um, acoustically. And it's a lot of fun, and I think the audience will enjoy hearing it as well. Absolutely. <clears throat> I want to speak a little more about what you mentioned, that Rossini and other composers of the time were writing specifically for the artists that were in the cast. Right. That manifests itself in different ways now. In Barber of Seville, there's at least one significant aria that exists in another one of his pieces. So talk to me a little bit about that, and then also how ornamentation factors into preparation and performances of Rossini operas. Absolutely. What you say is so, so true and so important. The last aria for the tenor, Cessa di più resistere, is in the grand style of an aria back then. What does that mean? It means it has a first sort of triumphant part. Then it has a very slow, lyrical, expressive part. And then it has the final section, which is bravura, pyrotechnics, and all of that. And the theme for that final part is right? And of course, many of us know this as the final aria for Cenerentola. And in fact, it's very simple why that is. So Cesare di Pure was written for the tenor Garcia for the first performances mm-hmm. in Rome in 1816. And then he left the production. But the production then went to Bologna in the same year, 1816. And now the first Rosina was sort of head honcho. See, Garcia was was the most 
famous person of the cast. And so she wrote to Rossini and said, can I sing Cessa di più resistere? And Rossini said, yes. So right from the beginning, the tenor stopped singing Cessa di più resistere, and then she sang it, Rosina sang it, which there's something to be said actually about that. And it's an idea I'd like to try maybe one one time. But anyway, she sang it, and then she was the first Cenerentola. And so he wrote, you know, Non Piumesta for her, and used that same theme and wrote just a few different variations. And if I'm not mistaken, she when she sang Rosina afterwards, she just sang the aria from Cenerentola at the end. Hmm. <laughs> so, but that also speaks to the fluidity and the sort of what we might call loosey-goosey attitude about these pieces. Even going back to Mozart, Mozart wrote, different arias for different people. And we forget that, you know, nowadays, because, of course, this music is so sacred to us. But back then, it wasn't. It was just, it was just a little easier of a time, which sort of goes into that second part of what you were talking about, ornamentation. The idea of ornamentation in these composers is so central to how we present it. Again, it's hard for us today to realize what that's all about. Because when we think of music, first of all, when we go to the theater, the theater is dark, right? We turn down the lights, we're concentrating, we are watching, we are not clapping until the end of certain things. This was not how it was at the time. The The lights were on the, the until Wagner, of course, the orchestra was not in the pit. You saw the orchestra. The reason there was an overture was to tell people to stop making noise. And of course, in France, you had to have the ballet in the third act because you wanted to make sure everyone would be there to see it. You couldn't have the ballet in the first act because many of the most important people were not going to show up. So the whole approach to the entire experience was different. Back then, singers were thought to express themselves by adding ornaments or changing what the composer wrote, and the composer expected them to do it. And sort of in the same way that we were talking about Rossini and the guitar ornaments, or rather the guitar accompaniment, he didn't write the guitar accompaniment because he knew Garcia would do whatever he wanted. And in that same fashion, you see very often, like for example, at the end of the first part of Una Voce Poco Fa, what's written is La Vincero, with a big fermata over it. But we have in this instance, three of Rossini's ornaments. And we see that at that moment, even though he wrote three notes, he wanted a huge cadenza, which spans two octaves. And this is difficult because, of course, we want to honor the composer and we want to do what the composer intended. But in this instance, what the composer wanted and intended, unfortunately, some of it has not been passed down in writing. So, you know, there's different approaches. Some people say it's better not to do anything. And others, like myself, think that it is our duty to try and recreate what the composer expected to have happen. Not for any other reason other than the opposite can become boring and cannot give the audience what they're expecting and what the composer wanted to have happen. It's a lot of exploration and imagination yes, involved. Yes, absolutely. You've given us a couple little musical previews <laughs> of the score of Barber of Seville. Some of this score has really entered the popular canon. 
uh, in various different art forms that are very far away from opera. I think the audience can expect some familiar tunes here. Can you walk us through some recognizable things and maybe where they've appeared, where they might know them from? Of course, yeah. I think that it remains unparalleled in the United States for an opera that has reached, you know, the public in other ways than just listening to the opera. I grew up watching Bugs Bunny, and <laughs> I I will confess that sometimes when I'm conducting the overture, I hear Bugs going, you are my type of guy, let me straighten your tie. <laughs> um, so we all know it from that famous, famous cartoon, the overture. Mrs. Doubtfire begins with Robin Williams singing the Largo. Just going Figaro, 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 Figaro is so recognizable to so many people. The storm is also, parts of the storm are very, very known and have been used in various situations. Seinfeld did a whole episode called The Barber, where Jerry keeps going to the same barber and he's getting a little older and is not doing such a good job anymore. So he tries to go to the younger barber and drama ensues and they use the Barber of Seville, the entire episode of Seinfeld. So many different movies and and TV shows. And I bet going past that, there I think there's levels. I think the Overture, I think Largo, those are so, so recognizable. But then I'm sure for those of you who have been used to listening to classical music, Una Voce Poco Fa of the first aria for Rosina is very, very familiar. And in the same vein, the duet between Rosina and, and Figaro and and so on and so forth. And one of the great things about Rossini is that his music does seem so approachable and so recognizable. The danger is thinking that that's easy to do. It's actually quite hard to do so well. And uh, it's genius. Before we wrap up our time together, I want to ask you one of my favorite questions to ask artists. What's on your dream list? What titles have you not had the opportunity to conduct that would just be that the juicy ones that you're waiting for? Well, I love the big ones, Aida, Tristan, all of that. But to be quite honest, I've yet to do my first poem. I'm dying to do my first poem. Mm -hmm. And I love Elixir of Love. I love it to death. And, you know, it's a piece that sometimes younger conductors get and they're like, oh, I really want to do, you know, Lohengrin. I really want to do Elixir. I think it's just the greatest piece in the world. My wife and I have now worked together here at LA and in other places, but but on different productions. So I have to say one of the bigger dreams at the moment is doing an opera together. We've done recitals and we're actually going to do the four last songs together hmm. uh, this year. So that's exciting. But to, to do a production together would be a lot of fun. So that's definitely on the dream list. Just any of those titles that I feel I can bring something to, which is, I hope, what all artists try to do. It's hard because we all want to, we all want to achieve certain things and we want to get work and all of this stuff. But if we can remember to really pour our hearts into something we can express, I think that's the most important part of it and the most fun. Well, we look forward to seeing you add those titles to your repertoire and hopefully the not too distant future. Yes, thank you. And until then, uh, toy, toy, toy for the run of Barbara Seville. And we look forward to seeing you on the podium. Uh, Lewis, thank you so much for spending time with me today. It's been such a pleasure, Paul. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Playing now through November 12th, tickets to The Barber of Seville are available at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.